Hosting for this podcast is generously provided by Transistor at Transistor.fm. You are listening to Storygram Podcast Network. That's right. It is One Media, One Media, Gothtober. Oh, what? The fourth annual, third annual? I still can't remember anymore. I am Takeshi. With me, I have Santos. We are going to get into some dreams down the Serpentine Gallery. Some nightmares. (laughs) Nightmares. (laughs) Yes. That was the Tear Garden. And the reason why I played it today is because it is the 30th anniversary of the release of that album. And Kevin Key, one of the main writers and one of the people in that band, is going to be talking about it today. Probably right now as we speak, actually. (laughs) What do you mean talking about it today? He's going to be streaming and discussing how he made the album and stuff. Ah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So really exciting. Kevin Key is also in Skinny Pleppy, and he had this other band with the legendary Pink Dots, and so that was the singer, and of course Dwayne, but he's dead, of course. And, and we have covered Skinny Puppy. Yes, but we've never covered Tear Garden. Tear Garden's amazing, and so is the Pink Dots. And are they Gothtober? Maybe but Tear Garden. We might need to. Well, you didn't hear the song. Thirty anniversary. I probably know them. You didn't hear the song, did you? I didn't. Oh, man. Because then I would know who you were talking about, probably 100%. It's a very legendary band that's like never played live. It was like one of these side projects that like Kevin Key and Dwayne did together back in the 90s. Like they just get together in studio? Well, they had Skinny Puppy, but they had like a ton of side projects like Doubting Thomas and Download and Tear Garden was one of them. Ah. And then, like, of course, the singer from Legendary Pink Dots. 
has that band. So the thing about Pink Dots is like, hate to say it, man. If someone's really heavily into the Pink Dots, uh, they're into heroin too. <laughs> it gets hand in hand. <laughs> yeah, them and like Zappa too, man. There's something going on if you're a hardcore Zappa fan. If you never put one and one together, oh boy. The opiate epidemic <laughs> hitting fans of uh, Zappa. <laughs> uh, well, there, there's something going on with them. You can't just be a hardcore Zappa fan. <laughs> we'll have to hear from people what their experiences have been. <laughs> yeah. So today we're going to talk about the Sandman. And it's a pretty legendary comic. It's won a ton of awards. I thought it won like it was the first comic book to win. Like it's a Pulitzer. It's a writing thing, right? I think so. I thought it won a Pulitzer award, but I couldn't find the actual proof of it. But it's won a lot of different awards. Mm-hmm. Like it won the World Fantasy Award in 1991, and it's won a bunch of other like best storyline and. Of Esner, Esner Award and like all this other stuff, but I thought I won a Pulitzer, but I'm completely wrong. But I think a Pulitzer is also for reporting journalism. journalism. So there's some other kind of accolade. And is it a comic book or a graphic novel? And if it's a graphic novel or comic, like how many are there? Like, is it one thing or is it like a series? Let's get into that. Thank you. Because <laughs> it is a little tough to like figure out. If you look at the wiki of all the re-releases, there's done. There's like the original series, and then there's like spinoffs, but then the collections and editions. This is so. Isn't they like make a cool new cover, and then it's a new collection kind of thing? Yeah, there's the trade paperbacks here and there. There's the thirtieth anniversary edition. There's the deluxe edition. Absolute editions. Wow. Notated editions or whatever. Annotated. Oh. And then omnibus editions and reprints. (laughs) So if I wanted to read this. Yeah, yeah. I'm really curious about it too because. How do I? Yeah. Like how do you start? Ooh. uh, (laughs) ooh. Uh, Well, you know, do you have, what's it called? Google Books or it's all on not Android, Amazon. Like a Kindle? It's on a Kindle. It's all on Kindle. But is it as good on a Kindle with the pictures and things? I don't know. I have no clue. I have no idea. <laughs> There's a lot, though. It's a little complicated. Okay, here we go. So it was released originally on DC Comics, and it went from 1989 to 1993. I believe it was like 70-ish comics or so. Yes, the original one, Sandman, was 75 comics. And then 1993 to 2020, it was on Vertigo Comics. And I think that was also Sandman Into Dreams. Uh, I don't know, man. It goes into the Sandman, that which is 1989 to 1996. And then it goes to Sandman, The Dream Hunters. And it was 1999. And then there was another part that came out in 2013 to 2015 called The Sandman Overture. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a lot. It's it's also like, I wish I could see a visual. <laughs> like, 
Like I'm like, uh, it's okay. Shay need a PowerPoint presentation with all the covers. Yeah, I wish uh, I, I could actually understand everything. So it was created by Neil Gaiman and written by Neil Gaiman, and it was written by him, but also Sam Keith and Mike Durgenberg. I hope I said that right. And there's a lot of different people who helped out with the penciling and the artwork. Is he the artist for it as well? It says it was created and written by him. So he might have done like the original artwork. Like concept drawings and things. And and then you have a team that helps you. Totally. He's also the writer for that series called Lucifer. Yes. Or um, what about Good Omen? Let's see. Dead Boy Detectives. I don't see anything. And he's also the head producer for the Netflix series and writer. And I think he also helped direct some of the shows. And I I can't remember exactly. So he, he really has his fingerprints in this. And he's not just letting it go into nothingness. Or So I guess... The idea came in like 1974 to 1976. Oh, okay. So in the original Sandman, it was a little bit different until like Neil Gaiman took over it. Oh, so there was uh, the Sandman and then he came in at a certain point? I think so. Anyway, it seems like he Did he make it goth? Yes. He did. He did. <laughs> it seemed like he was really into Susie and the Banshees and like the Cure. And it does the their crew. makeup and their hair. Yeah. And like, he's British? Yes, he's from the UK. Or he's in the UK now. A lot of the stuff is based in the UK. Okay, so then the series, which we're going to talk about, that was released. Okay, well, hold up here. Not done yet. Because okay. <laughs> there's so much weird information. So there's spinoffs, which there's a ton. I'm not going to get into that. But the idea of having the Sandman on film has been around since the 90s. And it just took forever for it to kind of wow. go through all these hoops. Oh, I think I've heard that. Was it like a constant battle to get this going? Yeah. In the late 90s, probably because of like just getting the rights from DC and all that other stuff. Maybe that's why he moved on to the other comic book company, Vertigo. It's all like questions and question marks and stuff. Just off the bat, like technology wise, it's good that it came out now. I think you could get probably closer to the look that you want at this point. Yes and no. Like, I guess during the production, they really did try to keep it true to the comic. The Sandman dreams, he usually has this crazy, like, star eye, and that's when you know it's him. Mm-hmm. And it was hard for them to actually do that. It just didn't look natural. So they decided to not go with it, and they tried to make him super pasty and white, and it didn't look good. So that's why they kind of went with the look that they went with. I wish his he's hair was pretty pale. Yeah, but they were trying to go for like the, if you've seen the artwork, he's like oh. ghostly white. I mean, this is the trouble of having an idea in one medium and trying to get it into another medium. It's never going to be exactly that. It needs to change. 
You know what I mean? Like it has to shift. I think of like drawings and tattoos and like that kind of art. Like it's always going to look a little different because it's going from paper to skin. <laughs> so this is from paper to like real life <laughs> right. people. So it does need to, you can't force it. Cause like you said, then it's going to look unnatural or kind of hokey or something like that. Yeah. And if he's going to be out in the real world interacting with people, you just can't have this like guy that's like super pasty with huge hair. Well, I would have loved him having like big hair. Bigger hair. Yeah. More goth. A little bit, just slightly, but yeah. that's just me because his, he looks so cool in the comics. That's okay. I, I'm willing to let it go. But that would have looked a little more dated, I think, because it's coming out now. So Still, I mean, just dye the hair black. He did have black hair. Not really. It was dark brown. What? It wasn't black. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna look again. I didn't think I, of it as, I thought black. he had black hair. I thought he looked so goth. I was like, he's oh, no, I guess the lighting. No, it's just no. The his hair is pretty black in some it's, of these pictures. That's just the lighting. Once again, it's it's brown and other things. And anyway, when he's in daylight, he looks more regular. And you're wanting him to have that blue black. Yes, like go black. for it. Yeah. Not yeah, I get what you mean. We know dye. We know hair color. <laughs> Two blind okay. people. It's all good. <laughs> okay. I'm getting your point. Yeah, just jet black. That's it. That's, that's my biggest mm-hmm. complaint. Anyway, before we get into that, it was released <laughs> on Netflix August 5th of 2022, and it's still going on. It's 11 episodes now, but they approved a second season. Oh, when's that coming out? Well, we're in a writer's strike right now. Oh, and an actor's strike. Double strike. Not going to happen. Okay. <laughs> so it was developed by Neil Gaiman once again, and it's mm-hmm. starring Tom Sturridge, Boyd Hombrook, and Vivian, oh boy, and Peyton Oswald. Yeah, Patton Oswald. Yeah, Patton Oswald. He does the voice of the crow. Mm-hmm. Or is it a raven? Raven. Is it a raven? I couldn't. I always think they're crows, but I guess if it's bigger, it's a raven. Actually, ravens are easier to work with than crows, I guess, because crows have a mind of their own. They're too they're smart, smart to do what they're... Yeah, exactly. Okay, so probably a raven. Got the comedian voice there. Another interesting thing, it was $15 million per episode. Wow. So let's hope it did well. So we went over a little bit of the production, like how... Neil Gaiman has his fingerprints all over it. He's very on top of things. So they did try to put the star in his eyes and stuff. And every once in a while, you could kind of see it, but not really. And so the character, Tom Sturridge, as Lord Morpheus, or Dream, (laughs) he was also in Fairy Tale, a true story, Like Minds, Junk heads. I don't even know any of these. <laughs> a velvet like, buzzsaw. Uh, okay. British. I, I've never heard of any of these. Morpheus. More power to him. It looks like he does theater and television and film. He's won awards too for his theater work. Did this show win any awards? Not. Yet. So the first 11 episodes are the first 16 comics 
of the comic book series? The first 11 episodes are the first 16 comics? Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay. It does open up... You learn about Morpheus and that that he's the kind of king of dreams. Or I guess they say personification of dreams. And there's this idea of like, we in the waking life are like, oh, only the waking life is important and dreams aren't important. And so he's like, that's not true. You know, so it's kind of seeing like this disruption um, that's going to happen. And so he has his dream kingdom, but he also has nightmares that are out there as well that he's trying to keep control of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That he's created. And yes, he he's cre- he, these them. are his creations. Yeah. So he's like dreaming all these things. Anyways, he has a great sidekick, like assistant person in his dreamland. Her name is Lucienne, the librarian of the dreaming. Okay. And she kind of takes care of stuff when he's out. So she's like second in command. So it kind of starts out with him describe. You get a little narration so setting of place so you're not confused. Like me, because I didn't read anything. So <laughs> I just jumped into this series. And then he is leaving the dreamland, even though Lucienne is kind of like, ah, I don't know if that's a great idea. Because he's very powerful in the dream world, but he's not as powerful in the waking life. But he gears up, he's got his special gear and he leaves because there's a rogue nightmare. So there's a nightmare called Corinthian. Yes, that's right. Really scary character. <laughs> so Corinthian's out there doing things he's not supposed to be doing. And Morpheus is trying to get him back. And then this is where... Well, to set him in his place because he found him once and he's like, you better be good. And yeah. kind of like disappeared or something. Yeah, but then it's like, Corinthians like, no way. Like, I can do a lot of damage here and I'm having a good time. So um, he is blurring the lines. He is quite frightening. Boyd Holbrook is the Corinthian, the nightmare that escaped. This is the very first episode. So of course, we're just going to give details. Yeah, we're just going to brush over this and then kind of talk about... Yeah, then we won't. But there's a standoff between... He's there to collect Corinthian and then... At the same time, though, there's this mage. Is that what he called like the little boy? Was like, are you here to see the mage? That's what they called him. There's like a magician guy, like a human being who is into magic and witchcraft, who is trying to capture death to bring back his son. And you might say, didn't you just say there's a little boy in the picture? Yes, because he has two sons, but one of them died and he doesn't particularly like the other one. <laughs> it's like so really mean. sad and he's really mean. And this child though is kind of his dad's assistant. This is very goth. I love it because it takes place in like the early 1900s, like 19... 1916. Okay, 1916. Yeah, so before the 20s. So it has that look. It has like people in like cloaks or whatever. There's like a ritual going on. So I feel like it's beautiful and goth and fun. And there's another man coming to this house because he had some book that was part of the spell casting to capture death so they could try to get their loved ones back. Right. They have an material motive. They both want their loved ones back. Yeah. So they want to try to dominate death, which is like wild. (laughs) And because if you think of the time period, the war is going on, the First World War. So people are losing loved ones in the war and that's what happened. Did they both lose sons? So they were bonded on that grief. I think that's what they wanted. Either you give us our sons back or we're going to keep you captive. 
Yeah. So they do their ritual. It works. It pulls in, but it doesn't quite work. It's actually pulled in Morpheus. So right before Morpheus can capture Corinthian and get him under control, he's sucked away into this castle type mansion home with these people in like, there's like a drawing on the floor. So he's like stuck in this, what is it called? I'm not witchy enough to remember this. <laughs> it's like symbols on the floor that keeps you kind of trapped. So Morpheus is sucked into this binding circle. That's why he can't do anything. I didn't want people to think like, well, why are there just people standing around? Why doesn't he do something? Well, he's in a binding circle. And then for some reason, Roderick, this magician, warlock, I'm getting Aleister Crowley vibes if people know the history of like Aleister Crowley in that time period. So that's why I really like this too. Instead of him reaching in and getting items from who they think is death is there, but it's not. He sends his child. I thought that was really interesting. It was like, oh, make the boy go get it. But Alex, go get it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So he takes Morpheus's pouch that has sand in it and his ruby. And then they take the mask off his face. He has this interesting... What's a helm? What's it do? I don't know. It covers his whole face and head. Yeah, I think it's so he's able to detect his nightmares. Okay. It looks cool. So doesn't it give you a little bit of like steampunk vibe? It's pretty goth. Goth. Okay, more goth. All right. So they strip him down. So then he's just laying there in the binding circle. He looks like more like an alien versus some steampunk thing. Yeah, that's true. He's more alien-like and he's crumpled there. And so that's kind of like the beginning. Yeah. So he's stuck there for quite some time. And so what happens is a lot of people aren't able to either wake up and they're stuck in the dreaming. Yet a sleepy sickness takes over. Takes over quite a few people. And so there's a lot of repercussions. I thought there was going to kind of be more, mm-hmm. but it did affect some people where they pretty much probably died off or whatever. Yeah. They're just basically in a coma like state. So that's what happened. And then I think there's some stuff behind the scenes in the other realms that is going on because he's like his dream realm is not stable with him gone. It gets destroyed pretty much. It just falls apart because he's not able to keep it going and other gods or whatever, they kind of move out of the dreaming. And then they put him in like, um, I want to call it an aquarium, but it's not because it's not filled with water, but like a glass kind of... It's like a ball, a glass ball. Cell. Yeah, definitely. And so like eventually his son Alex feels really bad for him, but he never really does anything about it, which is kind of a bummer. And then eventually he does get out, but the first part of it is him trying to get his stuff back because during that time the magician's ex-wife took all his stuff and sold it. I think it was just his girlfriend. Oh, okay. His girlfriend like took all his stuff. Yeah, she took the helm and the ruby and the sand, right? She took everything. And she ended up just selling it. She didn't care about it really and trading it away. Well, she was like um, a single woman in 1916. (laughs) Pregnant and on the run. (laughs) So she eventually probably hawked some of that stuff. Yeah. So the first part is him just trying to get it. And then the other part is about kind of a vortex. And you kind of learn more about that. And then there's a couple other like short stories in there. And I kind of like the short stories. They're really cool. The cafe scene. 
Yeah, the cafe. The episode that took place in the cafe, that was pretty intense. That was great, man. I loved it. Uh, it was so cool. So it mixes it up. And then you get to meet other, like his siblings. They all don't like each other. They tolerate each other. Yeah. But there's some, like, they don't like him. Like, they not a lot of people like him. They think he's full of himself or something or annoying or whatever. It's like, it seems like they're pretty... Who is it? I want to name some of them. Oh, yeah. You get the fates. You get... Oh, Desire. Desire and Despair. Is it Desire and Despair that are together? Very great. Desire is wonderful. Like, what a great casting. The actor or actress, they are in the newer Quantum Leap, too. Oh, they're great. So they don't like Morpheus. Like, they're glad he's locked up. No one no one comes to help him. Like, they're... I wonder why his sister, Death, didn't help him out because, well, she's probably too busy. I know. They seemed closer at yeah. some points. You get to meet Death. Um, you get to meet... Lucifer as well. Right. And go to that realm. So that's really fun. And then that... What did you think about the serial killer convention? Oh, dude, that was funny. It was funny. It's it kind of creepy. <laughs> yeah. And they're all inspired by Constantine. Oh, yeah. Corinthian and the like Corinthian. His, yes. a, They're all exactly. inspired by the There's Corinthian. Like, yes. They're all following... There's just storylines kind of woven through yeah. as well. Like, isn't the muse who was held captive. And then there's like the woman who got the sleeping sickness. There's a lot of fun things that like tie in together. So it doesn't get boring. Yeah. It all does come together. And I think they did a really good job considering, I mean, it's probably because Neil Gaiman was there the whole entire time, making sure everything was in line. I remember the comic book series actually being pretty groundbreaking just because they had just like openly gay characters in the series. So that was always in the comic books? I believe so, if I remember right, which was kind of a first. You know, the funny thing is, too, there was some changes that they had to do. Like, Joanna Constantine is actually Joe Constantine in the DC series, and he's an actual character in the DC universe to kind of veer off of it because they probably couldn't get the rights for it, or they created Joanna Constantine. So she's part of the family. So, and what's the Constantine family again? I guess they're devil hunters or something. Something like that, right? Like, and they're human though, right? Yes. But so it's like generations and generations. I really liked that storyline though of them. And then also, did they make the bet about the human that they made immortal? Who did that? That was him and death. Yeah. And then they meet every... Yeah, every hundred years. Every hundred years to see if he still is enjoying being oh, alive. Or- yeah, dude, so that's so. F- that's like playing with your live meat and just kind of seeing what's going to happen with but it. They were just—it was like a weird experiment, and so you get to see that storyline as well. Like this person, I don't know. There's something interesting about like becoming friends, almost. Like there's a friendship there. And then also another change they had to do was Lita and Hector. They're actually superheroes. I can't remember which superheroes they are, but they're a part of the DC series, but they're heroes in the streaming world. And so they kind of changed it up a little bit to make everything more cohesive. Mm -hmm. They would have to kind of create more offshoots and wrap it all up in there. And it wouldn't really work out in a TV series. Oh, and then that random, (laughs) it felt very random that, Last episode. Oh, I loved it. 
It was so good. (laughs) Some people didn't like that one because they merged like two small mini episodes into one. I thought it was really cool. But it makes sense now that you said it's like like the first set of comic books. It's in the same world and family, but it's not necessarily like as linear as you want it to be. Or it it shows a totally different world. So it was funny. I was like, what? (laughs) So I don't know. I came from this being like someone recommending it. I watched it during Christmas time and I loved it. So I really liked it. I don't have the background of like the comic books to like make me get upset if something's not... You know what I mean? Like if it's changed. So if you don't know the comic books, great. Enjoy it. If you do know the comics books really well, I don't know how that will affect it. I'm hoping you'll watch it with fresh eyes, like a different version. <laughs> well, the creator is okay with it. And he's yeah, the creator, has his fingerprints yeah. <laughs> all over it. This is his choice to do what he did. And so we got to respect his art. Did you like Patton Oswalt as the Raven? He was kind of annoying, but I guess that's the point. I got used to it. At first, I couldn't handle it. I was like, really? Like, throws it all off. But then I was like, I guess it's supposed to be some comic relief. I did feel like Morpheus was extremely goth. He was moody and emotional and pale. And he was, but to me, like when he talked, it sounded like it was an effort for him to speak. It was always like this. It was a little bit like that. Yeah. (laughs) It got kind of annoying at times. Mm -hmm but maybe that's just the way the character was supposed to be. I don't know. He was kind of annoying at times. So yeah, I, I don't know. That I was guess my biggest that's complaint. why some of the other characters maybe didn't like him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it was still good. I mean, I, I dug it. That's about it. Maybe the sound was a little weird at times to me. Like there's times when they're in a room and you could hear all this reverb. That That's just me though. I mean, oh. <laughs> it's nothing like big. It just sounded like it was not in the right place. I thought it was fun, though. It was interesting, and it's fantasy, and it has some suspense. And I think I watched it within like a day and a half, too. Wow. Good. Yeah, we watched it pretty fast, too, around. Did you watch it again? or I, I watched part of it again, just to kind of remember. <laughs> so I wasn't like totally like, nope. <laughs> I really, yeah. So I recommend it. I say check it Highly out. It's on Netflix. It's, it's, it's goth fun. as Lucifer, I don't know if you ever watched Lucifer. It's okay. It's not the best, but it's still good. Okay. I will try that. And then I think Good Omens is as well, Neil Gaiman. And I wanted to try that one because a friend recommended that one as well. So there's other options or you can read the 5,000 different editions of Sandman. (laughs) Anyway, check it out if you want. We'll be right back. Storygram Network. Hello, welcome to One Media, One Media. I'm your host, Takeshi, and with me I have Santos, and we take two pieces of media, and we take a deep dive on them. Kind of. We just talk about it. Kind of. Hi, my name is Laura Lee, and this is It's Not About Food. So it's not about food, and it's not about weight. What is it about? It's the intersection of possibility, where what-ifs and why-nots collide. Some on the cutting edge, others on the cutting room floor. It's a place I like to call The Bleed. We sit for cares away, and you can do the same, cause you're in a safe place when you're whining with nurses. 
Storygram Network. And we are back, and we're going to talk about Switchblade Symphony Serpentine Gallery. It was released September 11th of 1995. It is 46 minutes and 44 seconds on the label of Cleopatra. It was produced by Switchblade Symphony and George Stone. After this was Scrapbook. Funny thing is, is there's not much information about this at all, any shape or form, because the band was only active for about a good decade. Ten years is a long time. Yeah. They just broke up. And I think the last album was released in 2001, which was Sinister Nostalgia. Oh, it's just remixes. Yeah. So 1999, that was it. Yeah, because they formed in what, 89? So they went to for 10 years. Yes. San Francisco. Yeah, they're from San Francisco. And it has a composer of Susan Wallace or Suzanne Wallace and a vocalist, Tina Root. I used to always remember that everybody remembered when they were good. <laughs> it was so f- Because supposedly they used to have like a string section with them and they didn't really in this iteration but they had like some demo tapes i guess that's what i heard i don't know if it's true or not but so 89 they started they were messing around stuff but they didn't come out with something until 95 yes but they had demo tapes out in like 91 and 92 demo tapes and that's serpentine gallery is that what they said i think serpentine gallery has a lot of that's their first stuff and then i read that thread and jam for Francis went more electronic. Yeah, supposedly they had like strings and a full symphony. I don't know if it's true or not. Before Serpentine Gallery? Yes. That's what everybody was like kind of bitching about back in the day. Oh. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> you know, back in the day, it's just like if they're becoming big, it's like they're not good anymore. So. Yeah. What were they like live? They were pretty cool. So the very first goth club I ever went to, I saw this band live. They just happened to be there. And yeah, they were really cool. I dug it. I don't really remember much of it because it was just the whole entire environment. I was just tripping out on the whole entire time. Like just like people getting pierced and tattooed (laughs) at a club. (laughs) (laughs) And just like the whole entire idea of it all. And yeah, they were fun. I liked it. And also they were on this label called Cleopatra Records, which was such a thing back in the day. They were like a goth label. And I guess it got kind of eaten up by another label. And they do all of different things nowadays, aside from just goth music, if any. But the interesting thing is they did acquire Wax Tracks Records, which that had like ministry and some VP Manifesto and My Life is a Thrill Kill Cult. Oh, Cleopatra did? Yeah, they acquired them like in 2012 or something. Oh, and then someone acquired Cleopatra. No, someone acquired them before then. It was a New Red Archives or something like in 2010, I think. Yeah. And now there's a Cleopatra Entertainment. But it's very notable. I remember they had this catalog that you could order stuff from. It had like Christian Death on it and Rosetta Stone and 
of course, Switchblade Symphony, Leather Strip. It was a pretty cool label back in the day. I mean, of course, you know, things change and they have to do different things. So there's not much information about this. Yeah. And it was odd because even just searching their individual names, nothing really comes up of what they've been up to. And yeah, it's so really frustrating. I'm like, <laughs> oh, they're San Francisco. Maybe there's something, but not really. So they went into their own lives, I guess. And we were talking about it was pre-social media. So it's not as documented. And pre like real internet too. I mean, when they broke up, we were just getting like DSL or some type of faster internet. Yeah. If we wanted to learn more about them, we would have to go through our phones and cop our goth connections. Because I bet you do know them through people still. (laughs) I asked Bart that too. I was like, have you met them? And he's like, probably at some point. Yeah. I remember back in the day that if there was ever any kind of 80s goth band or something along, like Gary Newman per se or something, they were always the band that was opening up for all these other bands in San Francisco. So I feel like with your network, I bet we could have, but we'd have to phone. It's like six degrees separation. I feel like you, you're there. Yeah. It <laughs> looks like there was a live 105 interview. I didn't listen to it on the re-release. Oh, I was listening to the other version, so I missed that. Yeah, I missed it too. So I'll have to listen to it. Maybe there's a little bit more information. Well, there's there. like a ton of information, but that's from like 97. It wasn't like information of now, like what's going on. Very true. Whoops. How, how did you like the album? It's weird. My biggest complaints are it just feels like a little bit one note, one tone cookie cutter. I respect it because it is their first album, but I didn't like the fake drums and the fake bass sound. And you could tell it's a fake bass, but I'm sure when they played live, they had an actual band with them. So it probably sounded better live. And it kind of made a reflect on that because back in the day, it kind of seemed like albums weren't as good as seeing them live, like bands in general. Yeah. There's a lot of different reasons for that. Sometimes it's just because they had a real band and the production of the recording wasn't that good. And there's this sense of, like you said, being in a goth club in the 90s like that's not captured on the album (laughs) so it is missing that kind of feeling i guess if that makes sense like it's like it does feel flat it feels a little flat but uh, there's a lot of potential to say the least but it sounds very much of the time to me like i'm like oh that's 90s goth music so it's good it's more backgroundy for me we are coming off an album i really liked so that's what's hard too like, so I'm trying not, I'm not comparing. It's just when you hear something that you're, you can get inside of and you love. And then you hear something like this, you're like, oh, that's good. But it's not like hitting that higher point. Scrapbook sounds a little bit better, but it's still like along the line of it being kind of like one note. Yeah. I never listened to this album before. I only knew like one song off of this because it was on a mixtape a friend made me that I loved. You know, so I had a special place in my heart, like a certain song. <laughs> it just worked with that mix. It was fantastic. Listening to their music one after other after other, like their songs. You know, a like contrast or it's something about it. So I could put this on 
in the background. That's how I feel. Like I could do something else while listening to this. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there are other steps better. I think get, the production gets better. Yeah, I wanted to listen to some of the other albums. And the other albums, the second one at least, the scrapbook, it sounds like they do use real drums and a real bass here and there. None of it's bad. So I, I feel, I hope this doesn't come off. <laughs> There's a whole lot of potential. That's the thing. It seemed like listening to this album, you could hear the potential in it. Like it could be going somewhere. For me, it was a kind of the like, not nostalgia, but you know, like it's a sound. Like they have this sound. They have like a goth sound. So it's great on that level of like, yep, it's goth. <laughs> so that's fun. The ring around the Rosie's part is kind of weird in one of the songs because she carries it on within like other albums, like does different types of nursery rhymes. That feels very 90s. Yeah, it's pretty funny. It's like, oh, okay, this is a thing. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Thing is about this band, they didn't really ever expand, really. So they didn't go beyond a certain tempo and everything, much like, you know, say Susie and the Banshees did or The Cure did or even Bauhaus. They kind of stay within this one specific mode, in a sense, even within the other albums. Okay. Well, that makes sense why you would break up eventually. Because it's like a certain sound and story and then it's done. Unless you transform it or move into different directions. We don't really know where they went after. I say people should listen to this. (laughs) Yeah, it's fun to listen to actually. And it's kind of weird just thinking like, okay, there are some like albums in the 90s that are so timeless. But this one feels like it's stuck in... The early 90s. Yes. <laughs> I feel like it's like watching an old movie that you're like, oh, that's dated. So, but I'm not sad that it's dated because I do like that time period. So I don't know if that makes sense. Like, makes perfect sense. Like I said, I love having a couple songs and mixes still. I just can't get through the whole album all the time. <laughs> like I'm not drawn to be like, oh, I well, listen to this whole album. Right. Is there any song that play the song clown? That's the song on my mix. (laughs) All right. All right. Here we go. Clown.
All right. Good times. So, yeah. I don't know what else to say about it, really. Yeah, I think it's a solid example of music from that time period. So, <laughs> check it out. Right. I'm happy they're part of our Gothtober. Yeah, definitely. I'm not irritated by it. No, Bay Area band. And yeah, this part of the scene. Yeah, I wish there was more. But unfortunately, there's not. I guess we should have listened to the Live 105 um, interview. <laughs> Everyone else, do your research. Listen to your Live 105 interview. It is on Spotify. And I don't know. I think that's it for today <laughs> you can find me at all social medias under glitch unicorn and you can find me on most social medias as sister santos <laughs>